Psalm 16 is where we're at in our Bibles this morning. We're in a series in the Psalms. This book in the middle, we call it a prayer book. We call it a song book of the Bible. And we're calling this series, Pour Out Your Heart to Him. Psalm 16 is certainly one of those psalms that does that. It pours out the heart to God in praise. Let's listen to what David wrote in Psalm 16. He wrote, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the, si- in the night also my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or the place of the dead. Or let your Holy One see corruption. No, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Well, we could call this psalm in hot pursuit of his presence. Many of you will know that hot pursuit is a phrase that police use when they're in, in a chase, right? I know that from Starsky and Hutch and Chips and Dukes of Hazard. Some of my personal favorites growing up. So I often as a kid was playing on my bike in hot pursuit of somebody. You know, in, some, in hot pursuit of something. And no doubt that influences my title this morning of this message. But I think it's a fitting title. I think this fits what's going on in Psalm 16. There's a hot pursuit of God's presence. I have a lot of P words for you this morning. A lot of P words came to mind as I worked through this psalm in this last week. Preachers sometimes use alliteration. It's not that they're illiterate. That might be the case, but... But alliteration is with an A, and it means that you take a, a, a series of words that all begin with the same letter at the beginning. And so for some reason, my mind quite frequently lands on P words. I don't know why. My wife makes fun of me for it. Um, a lot of my sermons are P's or R's. So I have some P's for you this week. If you notice on your sermon notes page in the back of your bulletin, I actually want to start at the end of the psalm, which is the thematic culmination of the psalm. That way we can note where it's going and then go back and build to it again. So notice on your sermon notes page the goal. That's where we start. The goal, well, it's in verse 11. The pleasure of his presence, the fullness of joy, and forever pleasures. Now that's a lofty promise, isn't it? It might make you nervous that it promises too much. Can you imagine an ad campaign? that says of this product, it will be the fullest pleasure. It will be forever joy. You think, no way. I don't care how good it is. You know, the iPhone 4S is out. 
there'll be a five, there'll be a six, there'll be a seven. Eventually, you can tell Siri to put you on the moon and you'll be there. You know, you can tell Siri, make my bed and somehow she'll grow arms and do it for you. There'll be a better iPhone, there'll be a better this, a better that. Not to mention that things break and things disintegrate and and not to mention that our hearts just lose interest, right? Because we're restless in seeking satisfaction. It doesn't matter how good something is. We just want a new one just to have a new one. So no ad campaign would be brash enough to say this thing will give the fullness of joy. It delivers forever pleasures. But God does. And it's true. It's true even if it doesn't feel like it, even if sometimes it doesn't seem like it. We'll talk about that some more. But this verse, verse 11, tells us that the fullness of joy and forever pleasure is found in his presence or at his right hand. That's where we get it. So we have to start by believing that, right? We have to start by believing that as a promise, a promise that we pursue and not one that we always know just by experience. But that's what we want. And let's just be honest, that's what we all want in our Christian lives or even just generally, humanly speaking, even apart from religion, we're all restless in seeking joy. We're all restless in trying to be fulfilled. We're all restless in trying to keep something that we enjoy and to keep it being enjoyed. And we can't. We're groping, like Ecclesiastes says. We're groping after the wind, trying to put it in our hands, and it slips through time and time again. Goal, the pleasure of his presence. Okay, the second section of your notes there is something we can think about along these lines, the game plan. How do we get there? How do we get to the place where we experience the pleasure of his presence like it's being talked about here in Psalm 1611? Well, I have six ways in which we pursue the pleasure of his presence, how we call the game plan. It's here, right in Psalm 16. The first is this, we trust his promises. We trust his promises. Now, under this, I want to give you several more P's, believe it or not. There are hints in the psalm about what he's promised. Let's talk about those. There are promises for provision in the psalm. You see in verse 6, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. That's kind of a word picture, a metaphor. I won't go into it, but, but it tells us that God's been good. He's provided the, the role of the dice of life for someone who believes in luck and not God. It's something like what the psalmist is saying here, that the lines have fallen for us in pleasant places. It's not just that he provides, but he's provided pleasantly. There are promises here for protection. That in him, verse 9, my flesh dwells secure. He's at my right hand, the psalmist says. He's near. He's there when I call. He's a helper. My flesh dwells secure. There are promises for preservation. Look at verse 1 and verse 2. We'll talk about preservation. He says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge, safety. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. 
really verses 1 and 2 are like a miniature gospel in a sense, right? They tell us the problem. I have no good apart from you. This is David, the guy who was known for being a man after God's own heart. He had no good apart from the Lord. So in him he takes refuge. And we know from the New Testament what that really means, how that came to be fulfilled, that we as Christians take refuge in Jesus' blood and righteousness for us, his life and his death on our behalf. That's our refuge. It's our saving refuge. And in that refuge... It is preservation. He keeps us. It's not like he brings us into himself and then keeps us at arm's length at times. That Someday he may shut the door in our face, but we trust him to preserve, to care for us, savingly and otherwise as well. Or, to put it in the words of verse 11, he gives us promises for the path of life. See that? You make known the path of life. So much about this psalm is trusting the promises that are revealed here. We have to trust that God is the one who shows the path of life. Not Oprah, not that politician, not this program, not that philosopher. But God himself in his word has shown us the path of life. It's him who counsels, verse 7 says, or instructs. And it's in these ways, these promises here, you see in verse 9, that we see that Our heart can be glad, and our whole being can rejoice. So these promises are foundational for everything else that we're going to see in this psalm here. We have to believe that his promises are true before we can see the culmination of those promises in our own lives and feel them in our own experience. Or we could put it this way, we have to seek him because he promises to be near And he promises to give joy, not because we always feel that he's near or because we always feel like we're overflowing with joy. It begins by trusting his promises. Secondly, we also need to make him our portion. Make him our portion. Verse 5 uses that language of portion. It says, the Lord is my chosen portion. What's that mean? You might use the, the word portion for a meal, right? You get this much. Well, in, in these days of writing the Old Testament, people living in Old Testament times, this was a metaphor they wouldn't think of as a meal metaphor. They would think of this in terms of what God did when he brought his people to the promised land. And there he gave a portion of the land each to the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, to 11 of them. He didn't give a portion to the tribe of Levi. Why? Deuteronomy 10 tells us, verse 9, Therefore Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers. The Lord is his inheritance. You hear the word connection going on there? Psalm 16 talks about portion and inheritance. So Old Testament people... David's time before and after would read Psalm 16, hear portion and inheritance, and know what's being talked about there. It's being referred, it's referring back to Deuteronomy 10 and the time where God gave 
all the tribes, a portion of the land except one tribe. And to that tribe, Levi, he said, the Lord is your portion. He's your land. You see, God, throughout the Old Testament, occasionally gives us a sign of something so much more. In the midst of the sacrifices and the the centralized worship, it's in one place. In the midst of him working with one nation, sometimes you see promises of what's to come that are bigger. You get little hints of something more than just what they're experiencing at their time. You hear this, I think, in Moses' language in Psalm 90, verse 1. Moses prayed there. O Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. God is your dwelling place, Moses said. Moses said this. Moses, who's the leader of the people of Israel in the desert, going where? The promised land, right? His whole life is about the dwelling place, getting to the dwelling place. He won't get to go there. He'll just get to see it from afar. And even though that's his mission, and it's a God-given mission, he knows ultimately God is the final, ultimate dwelling place of all generations. So similarly, David in Psalm 16.5 is echoing that promise that was given to those Levites back in Deuteronomy 10. Even though he wasn't of that tribe of Levi, he was of a different tribe. But still, he can say with the tribe of Levi that knows it oh so well that it really isn't about the land. God himself is the portion. God himself is the inheritance. God himself is enough for us. Can you just let that ring out in your ears? Can you just let that ring out over the thing that you're dealing with right now, the trial, the thing that might get pulled away, the thing that seems shaky right now? The Lord is our portion. The Lord is enough for us. Do you believe that? That the Lord can take this. The Lord may not keep this. The Lord may shake this. But he is our portion. He is enough for us. We have to keep saying that to ourselves, preaching it to ourselves and to each other. We have to keep putting our hope in it if we will find pleasure in his presence like Psalm 16 wants us to. Third, we need to place God before our eyes. Place him before our eyes. That's what David says in verse 8 when he says, I have set the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand. I think what he's saying is, in all things, I relate it to God. In all things, I see it in light of him. I put on God glasses. Remember some cartoon as a kid. I don't remember which cartoon it was. But you know, two animals not getting along. It's frequent in cartoons, right? So this is one animal not getting along with this animal. Let's say it was a a dog not getting along with Sylvester. I remember the dog gave Sylvester, if it's the right character, gave, gave him some glasses that had a Tweety Bird in them. Sort of like that floating spot you get in your 30s and 40s and 50s. Anyone have that? I've got like three of them. And just do this, and they float out there. At first I thought it was aliens. Now I know. No, it's just a spot on your retina. Okay. So kind of like that, I remember the dog gave 
Sylvester some Tweety Bird glasses, and everywhere he looked, there the Tweety Bird went, right? And so he was chasing it and going crazy. I think he even got locked up in a a sane asylum at the end. But back to the Bible. (laughs) That's what David is saying. Put on the God glasses. See him over everything. See him in everything. See everything coming from him. Every burden cast upon him. Don't be anxious. Pray to him. Give thanks to him. It's his. Acknowledge it. Every blessing to be enjoyed in praise to him, not just enjoyed. Every task to be done, but not just done, but done to his glory, thoughtfully, carefully, it's simply what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. That whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do it to God's glory. David says, I've set the Lord always before me. Place him before your eyes. Work hard at this. It's not easy. It's easy to go 10 hours straight in a busy day and never think about the Lord unless you maybe had a meal and you're in the habit of praying before you take a bite. It's easy, but instead, place him before your eyes. And fourth, purposely pursue him. That is, go where he is. Because his glory is, yes, revealed everywhere in everything. His fingerprint is on his creation. Remember Psalm 19, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. But his glory isn't revealed in the same way or to the same degree In all things. Some things and some places have bigger fingerprints than God. And I don't mean some parts of his creation are more fascinating than others, like go to the Grand Canyon or get a telescope. I mean creation is one thing, but it says that he's there. And it says that he's powerful. And it says that he's in control. And it says that he likes beauty. But his word tells us so much more about who he is and what his plan is like. So go to where he is showing himself, revealing himself. We go to see him more clearly. Go to behold him. And yes, Jesus came into this world so that we would behold him. He came into this world to die in our place, to bring us to God. And we can now, in Christ, really look around and rejoice in God and his handiwork. And we should, and we should work hard at it, like I just said. But we should love where we can see him more. We should love more and pursue more where we can see him more. Now, eventually, this will be fulfilled in what we call the new heaven and the new earth. Eventually, Psalm 1611, in his presence is the fullness of joy, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore, will be fulfilled when we see him face to face and we're like him. Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians 3. He says, one day we'll see him face to face and we'll be changed. We'll be like him. Until then, he says, we behold him through a dark glass. And he's referring to scripture there. We behold him through a dark glass. So one day, Psalm 1611 will be finally, completely fulfilled. And that's why if it seems like it promises too much, you have to remember that God's plan isn't static. There's development, right? Themes are getting bigger. 
There's fulfillment, and then there's capital, all caps lock fulfillment. And that's what we have in the new heaven and the new earth. Until then, we have his presence in us, and we have his word, and we have each other. When we get together for corporate worship, there's something special about God meeting with us. Go where he is. Like it says in Psalm 63. Listen to this. Oh God, you are my God, so I will earnestly seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Now for David in Psalm 63, this means going to the tabernacle, going to the temple, worshiping God at a certain place in a certain city. But he's saying that there's some place that's special, right? He's saying that God hasn't revealed himself in all places, at all times, in all the same ways. He's saying go where he is. And for us, that means not go to the temple, not go to Jerusalem, but meet together. We're the temple. I'll come back to that thought in just a bit. We have to also, fifth, praise him. Verse 7 talks about praise. It says, I'll bless the Lord, but blessed could be translated praise. It means to speak goodness of the Lord and to speak goodness to the Lord. Now, that might just sound like a given, right? We're supposed to praise him. Of course, if we're going to get fullness of joy, we're going to get it in his presence, we have to praise him. But it's possible to look like We're praising him and not be praising him. You see, it's not just observing his handiwork and that stopping there. It's not just noticing that his creation is beautiful and clever and and he did it and stopping there. It's not enough to merely read the Bible and ponder it and learn new things. And it's not enough merely to get together and talk about truth or even to sing We have to talk to God about all that or else we stop short of praise. We have to notice his truth, ponder his truth. We have to enjoy his truth and we have to enjoy it with him and to him. Again, it's very possible to do many good things that look like praise, but they stop short of actual praise because it's not to him if we're going to pursue the fullness of joy we're going to have to acknowledge his presence and to acknowledge his presence means we address him talk to him let the psalms keep being your guide keep reading through the psalms especially as we're in this series on Sunday mornings in this wonderful book keep letting the praise of the psalms be your instructor throughout the week on how We as Christians praise our God. Sixth, make his people a priority. It's in verse three. I've basically commented on every verse in this psalm, except notice verse three. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Now, it might seem a little strange at first in this psalm that this is about people in verse three. 90% of the psalm is vertical, right? It's about God and our personal relationship with God, our pursuit of God. And then verse 3 
is horizontal. It's about people. So why is it here? Well, for starters, verse 3 in many ways isn't about people. It's about God. Because the lofty accolades that are put on God's people in verse 3, notice they're saints, they're excellent ones, God delights in them. These lofty accolades are not to their credit. Remember verse 2? These people of verse 3 are just like David in verse 2. I have no good apart from you. These people, we could say, are God's because of God's mercy and for his glory. He's chosen to set his love upon them and he treats them as though they're holy and though they're excellent. He delights in them not because they are delightful. He delights in them because mysteriously he has chosen to redeem them, ultimately to die for them, and in Christ delight in them. So that's why verse 3 isn't just about people, but there's another reason why God's people are mentioned in this psalm. And that leads to our next section in your notes. There's a connection. Let's ask the question of this connection. What do people have to do with God's presence? Well, we've already hinted at it. There's this theme of God's presence, a mega theme in Scripture. It's like a thread in a blanket. You can pull on it, and then you can see all the places in Scripture. If you go looking, where this theme is there, right? You can see this movement taking place. Or another way of saying it is this, that God's word could be analyzed with this thread, this theme in mind of just his presence. So the garden is about God's presence. They walked with God in the cool of the day. And then sin comes into the world and Adam and Eve go hiding. They run from his presence. Ultimately, they're cast out of the garden, cast out of his presence. After Genesis 3, you have several chapters in a row there where God isn't talking to anyone. In Genesis 1 and 2, he was walking with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day. The garden was this hot spot of his presence. And now there isn't such a thing. Genesis 4, Genesis 5. The story of God's presence in the Old Testament is a complicated one, fascinating one. You see things promised and then fulfilled, and then there are these ups and downs about the fulfillment, right? So God is with his people in the wilderness, but he's not in the midst of the people. He's out there ahead of them. So Moses says, please come with us. Be with us, or I can't do this anymore. From that time on, there's the tabernacle, and God dwells in the midst of his people. But they're wanderers. They're sojourners. I mean, God doesn't have a house. He has a tent. God has a tent. Until they get to the land, and then the temple is built. What's the temple? It's a place for God's presence, right? But then Jesus comes. In the coming of Jesus, God's presence takes a definitive turn. So John 1 says that Jesus came and tabernacled among us. He pitched a tent in our midst. He tabernacled amongst God in the midst of his people. John 2, Jesus says himself that he's the true temple. And the story goes further, and we find from the epistles, like Paul's letters, 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, 
that now Christians are the temple of God and the Holy Spirit lives right within them. So wherever they go, it's the temple. He's at the right hand. He's right here. He's within us. And that's in part how worship can be anywhere and everywhere and in everything. The theme of his presence is getting intensified. He's also communicated to us in his word, like I said. He speaks to us in his word. And he also meets with us, as I said, when we come together as his people for worship. Let me show you more of that. You can turn to 1 Peter 2 or just listen. 1 Peter 2 tells us that there's something special about when we get together in worship. It says, you yourselves are like living stones. Stones, the temple. But these are living stones. Living stones which are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood for spiritual sacrifices. What does that mean? It means every Christian is in a sense a temple of the Holy Spirit, the living God. And yet there's something special about the living stones getting together. One on top of another. They make up a spiritual building and God meets with them in a special way. You see it also in 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul there talks about an unbeliever possibly coming into a worship service like this. And he says, what can happen is this. This is what we pray most Sundays around here. would happen? That there'd be conviction, that he'd be called to account, the secrets of his heart would be disclosed, and ultimately... He would fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is really among you. In other words, in corporate worship, there's something special about God's presence in our midst. It's that in his people, there is a reverberation of his presence. Oh, I know it doesn't feel like it. I look real average. You know, that guy looks funny. Okay, that kid looks sloppy. And yet, each one of us, if we're in Christ, is a temple of the Holy Spirit. These are spiritual stones built, hewn out in God's mercy and grace to be a body or a building for his very presence. So when we get together, something is happening, whether we feel it or not. It's not his fault that sometimes we're dull in our senses, and it doesn't feel like he's here in any special way, but he is. So we need to meet together. For God and for each other, we need to meet together. Charles Spurgeon used to say that the coals stay hotter when they're together. You know that if you have a fireplace, you pull a log off the fire, you pull a coal out from the fire, and it quickly, I mean, five minutes, you could, you could handle a coal. I think, I don't remember tried, but 10 minutes or so, you can handle it. Not so if it's in the fire, not so if it's next to other coals. We need each other just like those coals. We also believe that God speaks afresh in the preaching of his word when it's together with the church. D.A. Carson talks about this when he says, Ideally, a sermon is more than just a communication of propositions and morals. It's the communication of God from God. In the sermon, 
if it's accurate, if it's biblical, God mediates himself to us by the same word when once again it's announced by the man of God. This isn't just someone talking about an old book or religious opinions. Yes, God spoke when it was written down. Yes, God spoke when, say, Moses or Abraham heard it. But God speaks afresh as it's announced again. In 1566, the second Helvetic Confession was written, and it has a whole section on this called The Preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. Of course, if it's faithful to the Word of God, not if it's made-up stuff. So the book of Acts talks about the church getting together, at least weekly. It says in a couple of different places they met on the first day of the week, or what we call Sunday, or what by the end of the first century was referred to as the Lord's Day. Referred to as the Lord's Day because it's the day of his resurrection. It's the Lord's Day. The church gets together on the Lord's Day. Yes, at other times, sure, but it seems in the book of Acts and in early church history, it's the primary or large group meeting. It's not the same thing as the Old Testament Sabbath, but we do believe it's special. It's the Lord's Day. Not the Lord's half hour. There's something special about it. So there's the connection between God's presence and his people. They go together. Yes, he's everywhere in all things. We can see his fingerprints 24-7. But there's something special about his presence among his people together. And we should pursue that. So Psalm 63 Verse 1, O God, you are my God, earnestly I will seek you, relates to how we look at everything around us. It tells us, put on God glasses and look around. Psalm 63, 1 and Psalm 16, 11 says, go to his word where he can be found. Go to his word to see him more clearly. Earnestly seek him there. And Psalm 63, verse 1, also implies, I think, that we should meet together to earnestly seek him together. So I want to close this morning with a test case, a test case about the priority of Sunday morning. Now, it's the last point in your sermon notes page, but I, I want to take several minutes still on this, so get comfy. I want to give a a personal, passionate, uh, pastoral, very long-time planned appeal uh, to you today. Sort of a living room talk with my church family. There's some strengths and weaknesses in every church, right? And it's the church's responsibility in every age to celebrate the God-given strengths and also to confront the weaknesses and ask the Lord for help in those weaknesses. So I think DSC has a growing weakness, maybe twofold growing weakness that, that are related. I think for some, there's a carelessness about coming regularly on Sunday morning. And I think a second related weakness at DSC, even more prevalent, is a carelessness to be on time when we do come together on Sunday morning. So let me talk about those two things, and really to talk only about the second one 
because everything I say about the second one, about coming on time, will equally apply to just coming, right? Uh, if I'm going to make an argument, here's why you should come on time, all the more so, here's why you should at least come. Now let me mention some qualifications uh, right up front, because I, I, I'm sure some of you are tensing up already. I didn't think it was this kind of church. He's from Detroit. What's he know about New Mexico? Let me give some qualifications. I know, for starters, that emergencies happen. I know there are legitimate reasons for having to be late. And not least is little kids. Um, And not least is a new little kid or more kids than you had last week or a month ago. And, and, you know, there's always the, the complexity of trying to get ready with new stuff to do on a Sunday morning than you had to do before. I know. Uh, I know firsthand, not in recent years, but years past, I, I know the complexity of a, a baby barfing on mom right before you, you go. And mom can either go and show that she treasures God more than anything, even more than people's noses, because, you know, she smells like baby milk. And she shows up. No, you, you change if that happens, Right? If a baby oozes out both sides of the diaper, you change, you fix that. Please stay and fix that. So I know it's complicated, but I, but I do also have to wonder whether you might be getting used to a new normal of being late. Even some younger families with younger kids, maybe you haven't tried hard enough and been strategic enough to try to be on time, even with little ones um, in the way, in a sense. So I'm not talking about those things this morning where you couldn't help it. I'm talking about things we can help. I'm talking not about this morning. So if you were late, by the way, I don't know if you were late. I never know who's late. I just notice a trend that it's pretty empty when we start, and then it's more full 20 minutes later. So I, I never look in the middle to go, well, who is coming in? Uh, I don't know. So if you were late today, just know I'm not talking about you. In fact, let's just assume that everyone who came in late today was late for legitimate reasons. And so no one should feel bad about today. I'm not talking about today. I'm not talking about you specifically. Um, I just wonder if generally this is a pattern that reflects something Of the heart. Know this, my concern is not mere legalism or externalism. This is not about getting a star at the end because no one had any tardies this semester. We don't care about that. I just wonder if this reflects something of complacency. I wonder if this reflects something that doesn't quite match up with how big this thing is. I also don't think it's just a New Mexico manana thing, even though I am from Detroit, and I I claim New Mexico my own now. I've been here long enough, and I've checked around with other pastors in town. I think there's a bit of extra manana culture here in New Mexico, but I think DSC is is worse at it than, than other churches I know. And if you don't come late, I'm sorry, if you do come late consistently, you don't know how broad of a problem this is. So I'll tell you, 
and I checked with other leaders in the church about this, this percentage I'm going to give you, and they said, if anything, I think that's uh, a little optimistic. Here's what I would estimate. I would estimate that most Sundays we start the service, which, by the way, is 9 and 1045, if you didn't know. <laughs> if this is just an information problem here, let me just solve that for you. Uh, I would estimate that most Sundays we start the service with about 20% of the people in here who will be in here. That means 80% of our church is late on Sunday morning. Um, let me give you some reasons to approach that differently. Some reasons to come early. First would be reverence for God because he's here, he is meeting with us and you wouldn't show up late for a meeting with him. You seem to be able to make it on time. I seem to be able to make it on time, right, for an interview, right? Job interview, a meeting with the boss. There's some things I, I'm careless about and show up late to. I understand. But if God is meeting with us in a special way, then we're showing up late to a meeting with God We need to believe that he's meeting with the church and he's not waiting for me, for you. We should get here early out of respect for God, out of respect for others. Frankly, I feel sadness for Drew and other musicians who who have to begin with what feels like about 20 people in here. I feel sad sometimes for the person doing announcements who is doing announcements to half the church. That's an ongoing complexity for us. How do we communicate what's going on in the church without putting it at the end or in the middle, which we don't want to do, and put it at the beginning, but not so early because there aren't enough people there. That's tough for us sometimes. I think we should work harder at this for our kids' sake so that they see that mom and dad cherish the Lord above all else, that this is more important than the soccer game we made it on time to yesterday. This is more important than the wedding we made it on time for yesterday. We want to leave an example for our kids that he's the Lord and there's none besides him and our soul thirsts for him. Our flesh longs for him like it's been a dry and weary land all week and there's something of a feast that goes on when we meet together over his word and in song and in prayer. We want to do this for visitors because you probably don't know this but visitors usually don't come late. They tend to be the ones that want to get there, figure it out, not be surprised. They tend to be the ones that are on time. I'm not sure it communicates the right thing to our visitors, especially our non-Christian visitors, when it looks like we have way too big of a building for this number of people right at the beginning. And then it looks vastly different 20 minutes later. Also, I think you should, we should, work at this for ourselves. I think we personally, individually, need more of him than we know. I think an abbreviated and harried Sunday morning won't do for what's at stake. We need more than an abbreviated or harried Sunday morning. Can we agree that Psalm 16 and other places in the Bible say that one goal, at least 
one goal, if not the biggest part of our goal in corporate worship is getting ourselves happy in God. Sort of like Moses prayed in Psalm 90, verse 14, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we might sing for joy and be glad all our days. I pray that almost every day, I pray it especially on Sundays. If that's our goal, to be satisfied in the Lord, then let me ask you this. At what point in the service are you usually engaged in mind and moved in heart? Two songs in? Three songs in? Sometime during the sermon? Maybe not to the last song? I know sometimes never, but I mean on most Sundays. What if we came in ready to burst with thankfulness and joy or even honest heartbrokenness before the Lord? What if we came in eager to meet with him? What if we came in panting for him like a deer does for the water brook? What would it look like two songs in or three songs in if we started there? My dream is to see DSC full of people who come in on Sunday morning with a catcher's mitt. Come on, let's go. I'm ready. I've stretched. The mitt is oiled. I'm ready. Give it to me. Bring the heat, right? I think we need to acknowledge that coming in general has staying power. And I don't just mean staying at this church specifically though I don't think that's unimportant. I think it's good for us to stay put. I believe in long-term pastoral ministry, not because it's easier than jumping around pastoral ministry. It's not. I think it's harder. But I think it's harder for good reasons. I think it's harder for you to stay at one church. I think you should stay at one church. But I'm not saying coming has staying power just so that you stay at Desert Springs Church. What I mean is coming and attending, meeting with the church has staying in the faith power. Hebrews 10 talks about that. You should go read it, camp out on it, look at it, and see the connection there between coming and attending and persevering in the faith. I'm not saying that coming, attending is alone enough to persevere in the Christian life, but I am saying there's some connection A new Pew Research survey shows that every day in the U.S., every day thousands give up on the Christian church. I've seen so many folks leave our church saying they're going to shop around. I find them sometime later, chat with them, and find out they never really landed anywhere. They shopped around for a little bit, and Sunday morning became churchless. Almost everyone I know who has ever deserted the faith, given up on Christ completely, didn't do so while Sunday morning was a priority. It's one of the first things to go. For yourself, for your soul, come, keep coming, and come with earnestness. That's what I mean by coming as staying power. Now, let me give you some practical ways to prepare for Sunday morning before we wrap this up. Just quick suggestions, because I think it is very practical for many of us. 
How about doing some prep on Saturday night if necessary? You got more kids? Yeah, more prep. Do some Saturday night. Lay clothes out. Put cereal bowls out on the counter the night before. Plan to be at church early. Overestimate. Here's an absurd kind of extreme example, but what if you pretended like every Sunday was fallback time change Sunday? You woke up accidentally an hour early. Overestimate, at the very least, how much time it will take to get ready. Leave room for surprises, because you know by now, right, that there are surprises. Factor in five extra minutes for checking in the children. When we say, come and come on time, I don't mean, come, check your children in on time. I mean, check them in early so that you're here when we start. Factor in another five minutes if you want to stop and chat with people in the foyer. I know, especially in second service, that's a big reason why we have people not in here when we start. They're out there. And that's a good thing you're doing out there. But it's not the better thing. It's not the better thing. So I would encourage you, as you're walking in here, and someone grabs your arm and says, Hey, did you hear about? Did you see? You say lovingly and kindly, Hey, Let's chat afterwards. Let's get in there. Come on. That should be our culture. That should be the norm around here. Drew and the band, you might know, start playing about one minute before our actual start time. So that's your cue to be out in the foyer and listening. And then, oh, I hear the music just got loud. Ian's drumming hard. Let's get in there. That's when you come in. How different would Sunday look if... You weren't just on time, but you were early. Can you imagine a few extra minutes before for greeting and chatting and encouraging each other in the foyer before going into the worship center? Can you imagine going in here, not just on time, but even a few minutes early to sit down, to breathe, to read a psalm, to pray, to ask God to meet with us in a special way, to ask God to keep you from distraction, to afresh cast your burdens on him so that these aren't things on your mind, on your heart, on your shoulders as you're trying to seek him in worship. To pray for our singing corporately, to pray for our preaching, to pray for the lost that will be here, to pray that 1 Corinthians 14 would happen this morning. Oh, there's so much going on in what we do on a Sunday morning and we need prayer, we need preparation We need spiritual preparation. So maybe that means reading a psalm at home before you come with the family at the kitchen table. Maybe it means listening to good worship music. Maybe it means praying in the car on the way here. No matter who just cussed or what baby looks like Linda Blair with her head spinning around going crazy. Dads, hit pause and say, let's pray, guys. And pray for God's blessing in our time together. Pray for your kids' classes as they're heading off. Get to church early enough to remind yourself this isn't church attendance. We don't just show up and sit and maybe sing if we like the song. We meet with the living God. So I'll close with good advice from from Pastor Spurgeon. There should be, he says, some preparation of the heart and coming to the worship of God. Consider who he is and in whose name we gather. 
whom surely we cannot rush together without thought. Consider whom we profess to worship, and we shall not hurry into his presence as men run to a fire. Moses, the man of God, was warned to put off his shoes from his feet when God only revealed himself in a bush. How should we prepare ourselves when we come to him who reveals himself in Christ Jesus, his dear son? There should be no stumbling to the place of worship half asleep, no roaming here as if it were no more than going to playhouse. We cannot expect to profit much if we bring with us a swarm of idle thoughts and a heart crammed with vanity or emptiness. God help us.